I was wondering if the angel Gabriel had as good of a voice as Bob Graham that entire time. This is our fourth week in a series called Prepare the Way for the Lord. We started in Matthew's gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, which isn't everybody's favorite reading, but is so important to tell us who Jesus is. We learned about the titles that apply to him, like son of David and son of Abraham and Messiah. We talked about the perfect timing of his birth. He came to end the exile. And then we talked about troubles in Jesus' family. So two weeks ago, we talked about the confusion and difficulty of Joseph, Jesus's adopted legal father. But Joseph's story, although it is simple, it's very powerful. Sometimes he's downplayed or ignored, but he's so important. He heard how Jesus was conceived. He believed that very difficult message and took Mary and Jesus into his home. Last week, we talked about the extended family of Jesus. This is on Jesus's mom's side. Uh, Mary is related to a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was married to Zachariah, who encountered this same angel Gabriel in the temple distrusted the message, unlike Joseph, and was humbled by God. He was muted for nine months of his son's pregnancy, but at the very end, after he's humbled, he put his trust in God and obeyed. So each week, what we're seeing is that people have to be prepared for the coming of Jesus. God had to plant so many seeds along the way for people to truly grasp and understand who he really is. Now, if you grew up in church, you probably heard the story we just had read a million times. Uh, but before we kind of get a kind of fresh perspective on that story, I want to talk about a word that Jesus uses throughout his ministry, and that word is kingdom. He constantly opens his sermons with, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. The kingdom has come. Now, for Jews, there is a kingdom that would come to mind, and it was the kingdom of David. David had been handpicked by God. God even promised him that a son would come through him and sit on his throne forever. But for 500 years leading up to the birth of Jesus, the kingdom of David was in ruins. The family, the royal family, had to go underground. So when Jesus announces the kingdom is at hand, my question is, which one is he talking about? Is his kingdom from David or from God? Is his kingdom on earth or is it in heaven? Is it physical, tangible, visible, or is it spiritual, untouchable, invisible? I think depending upon your answer to these questions, your view of Jesus will change, your view of the church will change, even potentially your view of yourself will change. So I want to go back into this passage. We'll have the verses on the screen, and I think we'll learn something about the nature of Christ's kingdom because of the angelic visitation to Mary. So this is how that story begins. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, and I love that Luke has to clarify because no one knows where Nazareth is. It's in the middle of nowhere. By the way, it's a town in Galilee, and that angel went to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, 
a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, we're going to talk about this line later on in the sermon, but I want to focus on that phrase, you who are highly favored. It's a Greek word that is hard to pronounce and hard to translate. It's kekaritomene, and it is never again used in the New Testament. It's only about Mary. The root word is charis, which means grace. You could translate it, you who are graceful, you who are endowed with grace, you who are full of grace. And if that wasn't special enough, the angel says to her, the Lord is with you. Think about that. Not the, the Lord is in this room. It's not the Lord is with his people. The Lord is with Mary. The Lord is with you, Mary. So it makes sense for an unknown, random teenage girl from the middle of nowhere to respond this way. She is greatly troubled at his words. She wonders what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, we talked about this last week, but unlike Zechariah, who didn't trust Gabriel, Mary does. But the key thing is she asks a question of clarification. And it's not about how her son could possibly be king when King Herod is there. Her question is not about how he's going to fight off the Romans. Her question makes a lot of sense. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, don't be scared of Greek. It's okay. I did this for Jeff Peterson only. Okay, this is just for him. But what what she actually says, she doesn't use the Greek word for virgin, which is parthenos. She says, I don't know man. Okay? That sounds bizarre to Americans, but to Jews it would have made sense. Knowing a man or knowing a woman means intimately knowing them. It means sleeping with them. She says, how can I have a son if I don't know men? And the angel Gabriel says, knowing men has nothing to do with this son. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And Gabriel adds this in as a kicker. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She, who people said, was unable to conceive. Well, she's in her sixth month of pregnancy now. No word from God will ever fail. Okay, Think about what these words could mean to a Jewish girl just in her teens. She grew up hearing stories about the, how the Holy Spirit empowered uh, uh, people like Samson and, and Gideon and Deborah, and now she hears the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow and empower me. I'm going to be like them. And I love that the, the story from last week about Elizabeth and Zechariah getting pregnant is actually going to be a sign to Mary this week. The angel says, you know your, your relative, your, your Auntie Elizabeth? Everybody said she could never get pregnant. And everybody said she's way 
past childbearing years. Everybody said it couldn't happen, but guess what? She's in her second trimester. She's going to become a mom, and Mary, you're going to become a mom too, because God's word never fails. And Mary's response is one of the most important sentences in human history, because I believe she still had a choice, and this is her choice. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. It's like saying, may what you say become true in me. It's like saying, amen. This is the exact opposite of what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you remember that story, but Eve listens to a fallen angel, Satan, and disobey God's, disobeys God. She says, let it be unto me according to my word. But Mary says to God, let it be unto me according to thy word. Now, some of y'all have heard this story a million times, so I just want to shift this perspective. I want to share with you something that I have been researching and studying and I find to be so amazing because I've never seen it before, okay? If you go back to the greeting that Gabriel gave to Mary, he says something before he ever mentions Jesus' birth or the nature of his conception, okay? The angel Gabriel says, greetings you who are highly favored. Now that word in English is kind of boring. It doesn't mean much, okay? But the Greek word is kyre, okay? We're gonna say it all together this morning on three. One, two, three, kyre, okay? We're do gonna do it one more time. We're at Sunday morning. Maybe we're a little sleepy, okay? One, two, three, kyre, okay? That word is used in the New Testament in other places. When the Roman soldiers are mocking Jesus, they say, Kyrie, king of the Jews. It means hail. Okay, well, when do you say hail? You say hail to royalty. It's a royal acclamation. But when I read that, I thought, okay, well, how can an angel from the throne room of God say something royal about Mary? Why would an angel who to me seems so much more glorious than any human being say that to this random teenage girl in Nazareth. Gabriel actually has very good reasons to use this precise greeting, okay? Just remember what Gabriel predicts about Jesus' future. He will sit on the throne of his father, David, okay? In the kingdom of David, do you know who was queen over the kingdom? It is not the wife of the king. Every time we read about a king in Israel coming to the throne, guess who is mentioned? His mother's name. In 1 Kings 14, we're told about King Rehoboam's mother, who's Nama. In 1 Kings 15, we're told about Jeroboam's mother, whose name was Mekah. In 1 Kings 22, we're told about King Jehoshaphat. In 2 Kings 8, we're told about King Ahaziah. We're told dozens and dozens of times, this was the king and his mother's name was blank. And guess what Luke does in this chapter? Here's the king and his mother is Mary. Because in the kingdom of David, the queen is not the wife of the king, the queen is the mother of the king. Now, when I first heard this, I thought, well, there's nothing in the Old Testament that actually says that. 
Okay, this is a little bit of a stretch. But if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 2, you actually see a king treat his mother like a queen. Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him. The king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a what brought for his mother? A throne brought for his mom. And she sat down at his right hand. I have one small request to make of you, Bathsheba said. Don't refuse me. And King Solomon, the most powerful man in Israel, says, make it. Make this request, my mother. I will not refuse you. Okay. Stop right there. I'm getting a little bit excited. The Ten Commandments, they say, honor your father and mother. So maybe that's all he's doing here. But doesn't he do more than just honor her? It seems like he gets a throne for her. And we know the right hand of the king is very important. Jesus sat down at the right hand of who? The father. Is that not an important position? Solomon gives that to his mom. Now, I thought, well, that's just in the Old Testament. When do we ever see anything in the New Testament that actually gives this kind of role to Jesus' mother? In John chapter 2, I want you to see how similar 1 Kings 2 and John chapter 2 are. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Who was there? Jesus' mother. And she makes a small request. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother says to him, they have no more wine. Which means, wink, wink, make some wine for this wedding because we're out. Now, for mere mortals like everybody in this room, that would be challenging to the son of God and king of David. Not so much. But what's interesting is he initially shows hesitancy. Woman, why do you involve me? I would never say woman to my mom, but Jesus did it, okay? My hour has not yet come. Okay, he initially shows hesitancy, but what does his mother do? She knows he's going to do it anyways. Do whatever he tells you, servants. And Jesus says, moments later, fill the jars with water. Does that sound a little bit like Queen Bathsheba going to King Solomon with a small request? And the king saying, make your request, my mother, I will not refuse you. Now I thought, okay, eh, those connections seem like they're there, but, I mean, Mary never puts a crown on her head. When does she ever actually, when does she ever actually look like a queen? In Revelation chapter 12, John sees a sign. A great sign appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She's pregnant and cries out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. I have never in my life read a commentary that disagrees about who the son is and who the dragon is. In Revelation chapter 12, it says the dragon is Satan. Every scholar I've ever read says this son, this male child who rules all the nations, that is Jesus. But once it gets to the identity of the mother of Jesus, suddenly, tons of debate. Who could it possibly be? It's Mary. 
All the apostles knew who his mother was. Of course they would know that the mother of this son, the mother of the Messiah, is Mary. And she has a crown on top of her head. Now, it's just kind of funny to me that we're allowed to talk about all the changes that Jesus made in the life of the apostles, right? Simon denied Jesus three times. But when Jesus appears to him, he changes him to Peter. He restores him by saying, do you love me three times? He started out as a denier of Jesus, and then he's willing to be crucified upside down for Jesus. We talk about the way that Jesus changed the apostle Paul, right? He was a Pharisee persecuting Christians, wanting to kill them. But after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he is the zealous missionary Paul. But what's the one thing we can't talk about? The way that Jesus changed Mary. She is an unknown teenage girl from Nazareth. Wouldn't it change you to become the mother of the Son of God? Of course it would. And then for the Jews, it would make her queen. If Jesus really sits on the throne of his father David, then Jesus really made Mary into a queen. All the passages are there. But for some reason, we just think Mary shouldn't count. It's like we, we have to believe that she's the same person before and after she conceives and gives birth to the Son of God. But Elizabeth herself says, Mary, blessed are you amongst all women. Of course she's blessed among all women. Who, what other woman gets to give birth to the Savior? And I think what this shows us, it's not just about Mary, it's about Christ's kingdom. We find out that Christ's kingdom is in heaven and on earth. It is divine and human. It's from God and from David because it is through the virgin Mary. She is a real flesh and blood woman. And yet she becomes a queen because of Jesus the king. This kingdom is spiritual because the virgin birth is miraculous. But this kingdom is physical because the king came into the world in the womb of Mary. And I think as Christians, I think we know this to be true in our guts, right? Christ's kingdom is on earth. We're in it. That's what the good news of the church is all about. Men, women, and children being in his kingdom, being baptized in physical water that you can touch, coming to church and singing and praying and bowing our heads before our God, eating bread and drinking from the cup, serving the poor. This is all on earth. And yet, at the same time, his kingdom is in heaven. Right now, we can't picture it, but just try. Countless, countless angels worshiping God for all of eternity with all of the faithful dead who have gone before us. And they have no more sorrow or pain or woe. That doesn't sound like earth to me. That sounds like it's heaven. And one day we know Jesus will return from there and bring heaven to earth. That's why we say in the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. I think what this shows us, and this is so important in your walk as a, in a day-to-day, week-to-week life as a Christian, you've got to come to believe that Christ's kingdom is not a metaphor. It's not like he came and then the apostles thought to themselves, what is his ministry like? 
Well, we know about kingdoms, therefore let's use that as a kind of metaphor to understand his ministry. No, no, no. It's the word he used. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's say those last two words. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's here. It's with us. It's not a metaphor. It's not an interesting simile or analogy. It's real, and you can really be a part of it. And it is spiritual. Jesus wants to save your soul. He rules from heaven above all the angels. It is full of miracles, like a virgin birth. But it's physical because he made water in that baptistry. He makes it useful for baptism. Isn't that amazing? Some normal water gets to be used to cleanse us of our sins. And the bread and the cup right here, it means so much more than just being the bread and the cup. It's his body and blood, right? It's so physical. These are incredible promises. The question is not, is the kingdom real? The question is, will we inherit his kingdom? If you want to inherit the kingdom. I think the best way to do it is to respond the way that Mary did. There's three parts. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be unto me according to thy word. That's how to inherit the kingdom of Christ. God, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be unto me according to thy word. Let's pray. God, we pray for the same kind of response that Mary had to your messenger, Gabriel. And whatever our role in the kingdom is, mother or father, sister or brother, whatever part of the body we are, the hands and the feet, whatever role you want us to play, God, help us to say, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be unto me according to thy word. We know your kingdom is real. We know that it's in heaven and on earth. And we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are so often tempted to say, let it be unto me according to my word or the world's word. But we want to be fulfilled in us your word because your word never fails. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.